Jeremiah chapter 3, between verse 5 and verse 6, Jeremiah ends one message and is going to begin a new message in verse 6. This message is going to go all the way to the end of the chapter and then continue in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And so beginning in chapter 3, verse 6, Jeremiah writes, The Lord said also to me in the day in the days of Josiah, the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will cause my anger to fall on you, for I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord, your God, and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all the nation shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel and they shall come together out of the land, out of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your Fathers, in this chapter, all the way to chapter four, verse four, Jeremiah will once again use four vivid pictures, metaphors to illustrate Judah's spiritual condition. 
Judah is portrayed as an unfaithful wife in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The nation is pictured as an unhealthy patient in verses 21 through 25. And then as an unplowed field in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And as an uncircumcised heart in chapter 4, verse 4. In this section, there are also two words that Jeremiah will use over and over again. The two key words are return and backsliding. On yesterday's radio program, a desperate wife called in about her husband's addictive behavior. And she wanted to know if he was genuinely saved. And she talked about how he seemed to start off the Christian life, that he began life knowing God, loving God, praying to God, reading his Bible, going to church, entering into fellowship. And all of a sudden, he stopped reading his Bible and he stopped going to church. And he began to enter into the old habits and addictions that marked his life. And I said to her, I'm going to suggest to you that you're asking the wrong question. Now, clearly, it is an understandable question to want to know if your husband is saved or if he's not saved. Because guess what? If he's saved, then we can ask a question. And that is, can we expect our saved spouse to act like a Christian? But if they're unsaved, then guess what? Your responsibility is to give them the gospel. Over and over and over again. When we see friends and we see family engage in risky behavior, we plead with them to stop. If you're a parent or a grandparent and you see your children or your grandchildren driving drunk, if you see them engaging in in theft that's going to lead to arrest, if you see them engaging in unhealthy Behavior that could lead to AIDS or death. Immorality leads to broken hearts and shattered homes and social problems and every kind of unimaginable horror. Jeremiah issues a stern and a passionate plea to the people of Judah to return and repent because guess what? There are always consequences for bad behavior. God's people were on a downward spiral. They were on a crash course and the consequences were going to eventually catch up with them. And when Jeremiah is beginning this particular message, Josiah is the king. And because Josiah is the king, he understands and implements some external changes. But God knows that there may have been outward changes, but there was no change of heart. And so because they were on this downward spiral, because they were on this crash course, their life and their lifestyle would eventually result in the destruction of Jerusalem and a future of captivity. And the same is true when people turn from the true and the living God. And so he likens 
Judah to an unfaithful wife. In verse 6 he says, The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. It could be a reference to the northern kingdom which has already been taken captive by Assyria. When the Lord uses the, the description of Israel, it could mean the northern kingdom, but it could mean everyone who's a part of the covenant community. And the Lord gives the message in the days of Josiah. In the days of Josiah, the northern kingdom has already been taken, has already been scattered. Josiah, like I said, initiated a series of dramatic reforms. He attempts to purge false worship from the nation. He orders the false altars torn down. He orders the idols destroyed. He even attempts to spread the reform north. In, in Josiah's attempt to establish worship and to establish the true belief in the living God, he launches also a massive renovation to the temple, which had been neglected. And here, again, I suspect that Israel is the northern kingdom, but also the community of faith. And the word backsliding, the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? It's an interesting word, mezubah or meshubah. The idea is, in, in the Hebrew language, it carries with it the idea of a turning away. But it's a dramatic turning away. It's an apostasy. It contains the idea of not only unbelief, but a withdrawal from God. And the withdrawal can be emotional, affection. It isn't where you just simply stop reading the Bible or you stop going to church or you stop doing sort of like religious activities. It's where you open your Bible and your mind isn't there and your heart isn't there and your affection isn't there. And so it doesn't begin with just simply a wholesale abandonment of the things that you believe in. But there is just this sort of emotional detachment that begins to take place. And that's what he's talking about. The Hebrew word translated backsliding is used 12 times in the Old Testament, nine times in the book of Jeremiah, three times in the book of Hosea. In chapter 4, verse 16, chapter 11, verse 7, chapter 14, verse 4, where again, the people of Israel and Judah are likened to an adulterous spouse who has engaged in all kinds of blasphemous behavior. And so the Lord has already visited judgment on the northern kingdom. The Assyrians had destroyed the nation and exiled the people. And so this judgment, this judgment was supposed to provoke a strong warning to Judah. In other words, when they saw their rebellion, when they saw their resistance, when they saw all of these things take place, it was supposed to serve as a wake-up call for Judah. And sometimes that's exactly what happens as you look around you. 
When you see mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and neighbors and family and friend who decide to embark on a course of rebellion and resistance. And they go, you know what? I'm done with the Bible. I'm done with church. I'm done with the religious thing. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to be my own person. And then you watch judgment fall. You watch him get arrested. You watch him get hospitalized. You watch them lose their job and then lose their home and then lose their marriage and then lose everything that they valued. But the rebellious and the resistant don't always lose everything, do they? Sometimes they're able to muddle along in their rebellion and in their resistance. The northern kingdom had been given numerous opportunities to repent. The northern kingdom were guilty of the same sins that Judah was guilty of. Judah watched the judgment fall, but failed to learn from God's discipline. And in verse 7, look what it says. And I said, after she had done all those things, return to me. Now, here's part of the point. After she had done all those things, when the Lord said, return to me, that wasn't realistic. You see, a marriage that is marked by serial infidelity, where there has been a total abandonment of trust and respect and affection, it doesn't seem realistic. It doesn't seem reasonable that you could even even for a moment. Pretend to take somebody back like that, but God says, I'll take you back. Return to me. Now, think about that. In spite of the injury, in spite of the serial infidelity, look, and you should underline it, return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And in verse 8 it says, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. In other words, the continued repetition of resisting, then rebelling, rebelling and then rejecting God results in a catastrophe. And the ca- catastrophe is the disillusion of the relationship. Jeremiah uses a metaphor for divorce. I put her away and gave her a certificate of divorce. I want you to think about that for just a moment. I want the words to soak in. God got a divorce. Does that shock you? Is it shocking to you? Particularly if you've grown up in a world or a culture where you've heard the expression, divorce is a sin, divorce is a sin, divorce is a sin, divorce is always a sin, divorce is a sin, divorce is a sin, and divorce is a sin. By the way, is divorce a sin? It can be. But but is it always a sin? It can't be because God got a divorce. Is God capable of sinning? What do you think the right answer is? So let's do the math here. A, is God capable of sinning? That's the right answer. Did God get a divorce? Did God sin? 
now. So I'm going to suggest something to you. That divorce is often a result of sin. But it isn't always where we can lay the blame on both parties. I'm going to suggest to you that in most cases, in 99.9% of all human relationships that result in a divorce, that both parties share some responsibility in the dissolution of the relationship. But in this particular instance, it's not true of God. God has not done anything wrong. God has not done anything wicked. God has not done anything to contribute to the failure of this relationship. Let me give you an example. The result of living a human life is invariably going to be death. The Bible says that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. All human beings die. True or false? All human beings do die. Now, we're going to play a little crime scene investigation just for a moment. I'm going to invite all of you to come to the scene of a crime with me. And I want you to picture either in front of you or just immediately in front of you on the floor, there's a dead body. So we come into the crime scene and there's a dead body. You see the dead body laying on the floor. There's a knife protruding from the, tr the chest. And I go, young detectives, I present the body. You see the knife sticking out of the chest. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, OK, who has guesses on how this person died? Anybody got a guess? I see a knife sticking out of the chest. I'm going to go with maybe the knife killed him. So sure enough, we take the body to the medical examiner. He removes the knife, but does a blood test and discovers that his bloodstream is filled with cyanide. Ah, the person was poisoned and a knife was put in the chest to make it look like he was in fact murdered by a knife, but he was in fact poisoned. Is it possible that appearances are sometimes deceptive? That you see a dead body, you see a knife sticking out of the chest, you automatically assume that the person died from a knife wound, but it's not true. And that's exactly what we often see in failed relationships, that we see knives protruding out of the relationship's chest. And so we come to the conclusion that the husband stabbed the wife or the wife stabbed the husband, but there was some underlying poisoning taking place in the relationship. Divorce is almost always the consequences of sin. But it is possible, using this metaphor, that there is such a thing as an injured party. Now, I also want you to think about this for just a moment. God got a divorce, and the grounds for divorce was serial, unrepentant adultery. And when he says, he uses the metaphor, I put her away and gave her a certificate of divorce. There is a break in the relationship. Divorce redefines a relationship. And then in verse 10 it says, And yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Here is the idea. The idea is 
if you see a relationship dissolve right before your eyes and you see that there's some chance to somehow salvage the relationship, you would think that Judah would take that chance. And so here's the idea. Josiah initiates a series of reforms, including the destruction of the idols, including removing the high places, including um, restoring the temple. And so the people begin in this kind of artificial religious relationship. It's awkward and it's not real. In other words... They change their behavior and they change the idolatry and the spiritual adultery. But in their heart, nothing has really changed. And the Lord says, it's a pretense. It's a hypocrisy. And you've got to remember that the temple of God represented the presence of God. And you see, there was a a big difference between Israel and Judah. In, In Judah, the headquarters of Judah was Jerusalem, and in the middle of Jerusalem is the temple, and this is the place where you go for worship and sacrifice. This is the place where you enter into the covenant responsibilities that go with having a right relationship with God. And in the minds of the people, God God would never allow the temple to be destroyed. He would never allow the covenant between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be broken. He would never allow the promises made to David to not come to pass. In the minds of the people, God would never, ever allow Judah to be destroyed. And so in their way of thinking, it was no matter how weird and no matter how wicked we are, God's really not going to judge the situation. Some Christians have that attitude. Once saved, always saved. And please understand something. I believe in the assurance of the believer. But I also believe in what J. Vernon McGee used to say. I believe in the assurance of the believer, but I also believe in the non-assurance of the make-believer. Does the Bible give the believer permission to act like an unbeliever? What do you think the answer is? Did Paul write and did he say, hey, because we're saved by grace through faith, we can sin any way we want, however we want, because in the end, God must forgive us in Christ because we prayed a prayer. We walked down an aisle. Um, I went to church. I opened up the Bible and my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. No, you are saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, at least any person should boast. You're not saved by grace plus coming to church plus reading your Bible plus being a good person. That's not what makes you saved. But the problem becomes very much the same because even though the historical context here is an apostate northern kingdom and a, a, another, a southern kingdom that is on the verge of being disconnected and experiencing God's judgment, there's a, an application for each and every one of us. The people of Judah were hypocritical. They made a confession and profession of faith and they said, we believe that the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob also belong to us, but we also are going to continue in false worship of pagan gods and deities and we're going to continue to live a life of rebellion and distance from God. 
as if that's going to make it okay. I believe in God. I believe in the Bible. I believe in the promises of God. And then in verse 11, look what it says. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. What? Why were the people of Judah more guilty than the apostate kingdom to the north? In Israel, they never had a good king. It was always bad king. It was continuous bad leadership. It was continuous apostasy and false worship. Everything that could possibly go wrong in the north did go wrong in the north. So, what do you say? If you had a preference. Do you prefer your betrayal to be open, visible, public, or secret and behind your back? Which kind of betrayal do you prefer? The open, overt betrayal or the secret betrayal? If a person is going to not want you, not like you, not want to have anything, which is better for you? For them to say, look, I don't like you, I don't want to have anything to do with you, or the person who says, I do like you and I want to have everything to do with you, and then they cheat on you behind your back. Which do you prefer? Open, honest rebellion or secret statism? Which is better? The curses of a person who openly hates your guts or the flatteries of a person who pretends to like you when in fact they don't. Now you begin to understand a little bit why the Lord would say what the Lord would say. Both committed apostasy. Both worshipped false gods. The people of Judah had something that Israel didn't have. A bad example. You've had examples your whole life. This is what's going to happen to you if you continue to do this. This is what's going to happen to you if you do that. I'm sure you had a mother, father, grandmother, grandfather who warned you over and over again about the way things could go badly. We sometimes think of backsliding as some minor transgression. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Is that God's way of saying, well, because they're more righteous than treacherous Judah, that God is going to have more mercy or more grace? No, because the judgment is already taken place. The scattering has already happened. It's a terrible sin. That invites God's judgment. Now remember what backsliding is. It isn't wholesale rebellion. It isn't wholesale apostasy. It's just a mental and an emotional willingness to detach from affection and friendship with God. That's what he's warning against. In Luke chapter 9, verse 62, Jesus says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. He uses an illustration of backsliding. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. Now think about it. Your hand is on the plow. You're faced in the direction in which the job has to be done. You pause for just a moment and then you just look the other way 
and long for a life that doesn't include duty and labor. Are you in? Or are you out? You see, this is part of the challenge of being a Christian. Being a Christian is not a casual kind of friendship or relationship. It isn't, I'll go to church, I'll read my Bible, I'll walk with God because it's better than living a life of rebellion and apostasy. No. In John chapter 6, verse 63, the Lord says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went and walked with him no more. Jesus exposes them. Their unbelief. Their hypocrisy. Their inconsistency. And they were convicted. And they basically said, He's right. I don't really believe him. Have you ever been in that situation in your life where you go, I don't really believe the Bible is true. I don't really believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't really believe this. I don't really believe that I have to be faithful to my husband or wife. I don't really believe that that, um, I can do this or I can do that or I can engage in whatever it is that has been prohibited or forbidden. Uh, It's okay if I just in my heart believe that Jesus is the Lord. I have enough fire insurance to ensure that I don't go to hell, but I still want to live like it. Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. He was right. If you're going through hell, hell is not the place to stop. Keep going. Keep marching. If you're going through a rough time, if you're going through a time of doubt, if you're going through a time of disobedience, if you're going through a time of testing, if you're going through a time of purging, if you're going through a time where you're questioning your faith and doubting your circumstances and wondering whether or not you should live like a Christian, then use this as an opportunity. Not to abandon belief in God, but abandon your unbelief. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach to you. Let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, than that which you have received, let him be accursed. What was the gospel that Paul preached? That you're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. You're saved by grace and you're kept by grace. It's the kind of grace that allows a person to be changed from the inside and it works its way on the outside. That doesn't mean that there's not failure and that there's not circumstances that are problematic. But guess what? 
a person who's really saved, a person who is really born again, a person who has come into a right relationship with God in Christ might fall in the mud, but they're not going to stay in the mud. You might have a time of rebellion and disobedience, but at some point in your heart, you know that it's wrong and you know that it's rebellion and you know that that isn't who you are and what God Christ saved you to be. And so there's the appeal that takes place in verses 12 and 13. It's the same appeal, even though it's to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, it applies to us. In verse 12, it says, go and proclaim these words to the north and say, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Now, again, I want you to think about the historical context. Israel has already been taken captive. Judah is about to face captivity. When, when, when he tells Jeremiah, turn to the north. Which way is north, by the way? That way? Turn to the north. And say, Shubah, Meshubah Israel. In the Hebrew, it's powerful. Return, faithless Israel, and now think about that. The word return, Shubah, faithless, Meshubah. You see the word return even included in the term faithless. Now here's the idea. The idea of Meshubah is a turning away. And so even the term return You've turned away, but now it's time to turn back. Here's what it's saying. In human terms, reconciliation seems impossible. But God says, the devil whispers in your ear, you can't return. But I say that you can Your sin, dark, black, filthy, disgusting, dishonoring. God says, I'll forgive you. I am willing to forgive you. What happens, by the way, if the nation repents? Hope. What happens if you repent? Hope. God would forgive their sin. God would place them under his tender care. God would place them under his powerful protection. God would activate his promises in favor. Okay. So what do I need to do? Repentance was absolutely essential. Return. Faithless Israel. Even though the northern tribes were captured and scattered, there was still hope if the people would repent and return. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. The repentance and the returning removes anger. God's mad at you. I will not cause my anger to fall on you. He's really disappointed that you've let him down. I will not cause my anger to fall on you. 
What does repentance and returning do? It removes anger. I will not cause my anger to fall on you. For I am merciful, says the Lord. Literally, here, this is what the Hebrew text says, literally. I will not cause my face to fall. Do you know what that means? Have you ever asked the question, I wonder how my wife would look at me now. I wonder how my husband would look at me now. I wonder how my father, my mother would look at me now. I wonder how they would look at me now. In other words, that expression, I will not cause my face to fall. There's a diff- When a person looks at you with love and acceptance and a willingness to embrace you, there's a big difference when their face falls. When shame and disobedience has caused everyone in your life to look at you like this. It's an idiomatic expression. I will not allow my face to fall. The Hebrew expression is is not one of God looking at you with disdain or disgust. He says, for I am merciful. By the way, the Hebrew word is chesed or chesed. It's the word elsewhere translated Mercy is a, is, a, is a perfectly good translation, but it means steadfast love. In other words, uh, for I am merciful, the idea being I am steadfast in my willingness to act towards you in a way that's going to result in forgiveness and cleansing. We sang about it when we were worshiping the Lord, when we talked about that twofold cleansing that takes place, that you're washed in his blood, that the blood of Jesus not only washes away our sin, but it also imbues us with the righteousness of Christ. It not only takes away the guilt, but then it fills us with acceptance and righteousness in Christ Jesus the Lord. We could translate this, I won't bear a grudge. Has anyone ever said to you, look, I'll forgive you and I won't hold it against you. And then they do. I forgive you and I won't hold it against you. And then they do. And so there's a certain suspicion. When someone says, I won't be angry with you and I won't bear a grudge. And you wonder if it's really true. You wonder if it really applies to you. And I'm here to tell you that even though other people might tell you that and they may not mean it, when God says it, he really means it. In Luke chapter 1, verse 50, the Bible says, And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions they fail not. He will forgive you. He will not hold it against you. Well, I don't know. I've gone to this well a whole lot. You know, I've rubbed a hole in John 1, 9. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to, to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You don't know how many times I've asked God to forgive me. Will he stop at the fifth time or the hundredth time or the thousandth time? 
I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. Really? 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 Are you? Are you really merciful? In Joel chapter 2, verse 13, it says, So rend your heart, or tear your heart, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. How can you read these passages and come to the decision that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the God of the New Testament? The God of the Old Testament says, Return, repent, My anger won't fall on you. I will be merciful. I will be merciful through the mercies of God. You're not consumed. His compassions don't fail. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's full of kindness. He relents from doing harm. You realize what that means? Usually the way of the transgressor is hard. Usually the consequences are difficult. But is it possible that God is saying, look, I am willing to give you not what you deserve. I'm willing to pour my mercy upon you. Now, I want you to think about that. Repentance removes anger and invites mercy. Think about that for just a moment. Repentance removes anger and invites mercy. Who wouldn't want to repent? Hey, here's how you get the anger to go away. And this is how you get the mercy to come. Repent. I'm there. Okay. I'll do it. But remember what I've told you. Jeremiah preaches this powerful message. But they don't respond. Repentance removes anger. It invites mercy. It restores fellowship. The Lord knows that judgment is the inevitable outcome for those who refuse to repent and who shun God's mercy and who ignore God's judgment. But the call to repentance becomes applicable to each and every one of us when the Lord reminds you that you're going in a direction that you shouldn't be going. And he lays out the map on how to get home in verse 13. Only acknowledge your iniquity. That you have transgressed against the Lord your God. And have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Now think about that. He's saying, there is mercy and the alleviation of anger. Here's what I want you to do. The road home begins with confession. Just like it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It doesn't just simply mean to say the words out loud or even in your heart, I have done wrong. It isn't Some sort of theological waterboarding where God is trying to punish you in order to get you to confess to crimes that you've never committed. No. If you confess your sins, he will forgive you. Here's what he's saying. 
admit that you're a sinner. In other words, confession is way more than just simply saying, okay, I'm discovered. You found me out. It's agreeing with God about your spiritual condition. Look what it says, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. The idea is that you've crossed the line. We've crossed a line. That the Lord sets up a line and then we cross over the line and we fail to obey God's voice. God speaks to us. And says, please, I I don't want you to go there and I don't want you to do that. And you go, okay, and then you do. When we have the grandchildren over, you know what's the very first word that they've learned? Now. It's human nature, isn't it? I think it's because that's what they hear for the first two years of their life. No, don't touch that. No, no, stay away from that. No, 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 Nick, nine. I'll say it in different languages. No, 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 no. We fail to obey God's voice. Now, here's the condition of the return. He says the condition of return, number one, is to repent of these three, three sins. Rebellion, idolatry, disobedience. Now, remember, this becomes an important part of the process. But if they're unwilling to engage in the process, then it's gonna, they're going to find it difficult. And in verse 14, look what it says. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord. And look what it says. For I am married to you. I will take you. One from a city and two from a family. And I will return or I will bring you to Zion. Now, I'm going to suggest something to you. There's a series of five promises that are given from verse 14 all the way down to verse 18. See if you can find them. Five promises, and I'm going to try and help you out. He says, return, O faithless children. Shubu, banim, shobabim. He calls his brides children. Why? Again, he's talking about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The Lord has two spouses at this point. The northern apostate kingdom and the southern soon-to-be apostate kingdom. Israel and Judah, he calls them children. And he says return. But again, I'm going to suggest to you that the return isn't geographical. He's not saying to Israel Come out of your captivity and return to the northern part of the kingdom or come out of your captivity and return to the southern part of the kingdom. He's talking about a spiritual return. He's not talking about just simply the place where they're geographically located, but where their heart is located. You see, the tragedy is the alienation from God. For I am married to you. In the original language, it could even read, I am your master. Both translations fit and are possible. He's basically saying, we have a special, special relationship. And again, it's not, sim- it's not good enough to just simply confess the sin. We have to be willing to return to the Lord. And so, again, in that process of repentance, it isn't just simply admitting where we've gone wrong, but it's a willingness to go to the place that's going to be right. And so, once again, the Lord uses that image or the metaphor of a jilted spouse 
were married. He appeals to his wayward spouse to turn from forbidden lovers and to return to him. The Lord's heart ached for them, ached for them to return. If they would repent of their sin, he would forgive them and he would bless them. And what this does is it gives you a window into the heart of God for your own life. When we find ourselves estranged from God, when we find ourselves distant from God, when we find ourselves on a path of rebellion or disobedience and we wonder how God feels about what's going on in our life, the answer is he aches for you to return. That's the idea. If they would repent of their sins, he would forgive them. And bless them. And remember, repentance means a change of mind, a willingness to do good instead of evil, a change of heart that results in a change of life. And then a series of promises are given in rapid order. And I think that it has to do with the Messiah coming and when the Messiah sets up his kingdom, when he says, for I am married to you and I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. I'm going to suggest that this is part of the promise. He's basically in the context of the message speaking of a northern kingdom that has already been dissolved and scattered and a southern kingdom on the verge of catastrophe. But he's broadly talking to everyone who turns from God that we will return to Zion. And what does that mean? The northern tribes were literally taken captive. They were literally sold into the marketplace of sin. They're really substituted with with foreigners in the land. But the promise is given to Israel and Judah. I want you to think about this for the Jew, for the Jew, for the Jewish person, for the Jewish person who repents and returns to God. He holds out this bold offer of reconciliation and salvation. That I think is going to find its culmination in the messianic kingdom and in the millennial kingdom. And that the number will be small. One from a city. Two from a family. In the New Testament, Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there are who are traveling on that broad way. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And few are they who find it. I know what you're thinking. Why would anybody be crazy enough to turn down God's offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope and protection and promises? But guess what? For every one person who returns, 20 people will walk away and not return. So what does this mean? We will return to Zion. I'm going to suggest to you that it's a picture of what's going to take place in the Messianic age. That we go to the place that God has promised for his people. A little faith will bring your soul to heaven. But great faith will bring heaven into your soul. When you return, guess what? God shows up and you get placed in that place where God's presence is beheld. And in verse 15, it says, and I'll give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So there is a promise to return to the place of promise. And then 
There's a promise of godly leadership. When God's people are brought back to Zion, he will give them true shepherds, godly shepherds, shepherds after God's own heart. They will feed the people with the knowledge of the Messiah and understanding concerning the Messianic kingdom. I'm going to suggest to you that what he's talking about is leaders who will lead properly and who will point people to what it means to have godly relationship with God in Christ. And in verse 16 it says, Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, The ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. What days are those? Again, I think it's the days when they return from captivity. Is it the days after they're taken to Babylon and then return? I don't think so. Is it the Messiah's kingdom? I actually think that this is a reference to the Messiah's kingdom. God's people will experience a multiplication in true believers in the millennial kingdom. There's no violence. There's no sadness on the earth. There's peace and prosperity. In those days, God's repentant people worship in Jerusalem. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. By the way, when the children of Israel were scattered and went to Babylon, the Ark of the Covenant didn't come back with them. So historians have said, okay, when Jeremiah is writing these words, does the Ark of the Covenant exist? I think that the answer is yes. When they come back, is the Ark of the Covenant with them? Apparently not. The absence of the ark seems to indicate that you don't need a religious thing to represent the literal presence or the presence of the Messiah. But in fact, you have the presence of the Messiah. You don't need a religious artifact when you have Jesus, do you? You know what that's like? That's like having a picture of your wife or your husband say, here, let me show you a picture of my husband or my wife. And you go, this is my wife or my husband. You go, no, that's a picture of them. Why would you want a picture if you could have the real thing? The ark could be a valuable aid to faith, but it could also degenerate into some sort of religious relic or fetish. And by the way, when the children of Israel do return to the land, another ark wasn't made. And neither was a substitute for the ark. And by the way, in the Temple Institute, they're building an ark of the covenant. So in my view, Jeremiah is predicting a time in the millennial kingdom. And in verse 17, it says, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all the nation shall be gathered to it to the name of of the Lord to Jerusalem, no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. This must be the millennial kingdom, because guess what? Jerusalem is not the throne of the Lord today, and the nations certainly gather to it to visit it. But they still follow the dictates of their evil hearts. So the promise seems to include all of those who repent and return. The people of God will establish will see the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. The nations gather 
in Jerusalem. And so what does it mean? And all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord. I want you to read between the lines in the statement. What does it mean? All the nations shall be gathered to it. I'm going to suggest to you that Jeremiah is holding out a promise both to Israel and Judah. For those who repent and return to the Lord, they're going to see the conversion of the Gentiles into having a right relationship with God. In other words, this is a picture of a question that's going to be asked over and over again later on in the Bible. Can Gentiles be saved? Can Gentiles be saved? Can Gentiles be saved? What's the answer? Especially if you're a Gentile, what's the answer? Yeah, that's right. And no longer will they resist and reject God's Messiah. No longer will their hearts be stubborn and wicked and hardened and evil. I think this is a reference to Deuteronomy 29:19. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be, in, be included with the sober. In other words, a wicked heart is going to be changed into a righteous heart. Jeremiah 3.18 In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given them as an inheritance to your fathers. Do you understand what this is? This is a promise that those who repent and return will see the reunification of the nation Israel. In what way? Literally, I'm going to suggest to you, yes. The prophet envisions a united Israel. When the children of Israel returned from Babylon, did they occupy from the Galilee down to the north? Yes, they did. But has the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom been truly reunited? No. Will the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom unite when Christ returns and establishes the millennial kingdom? I think that the answer is yes. So here's the idea. All repentant believers will be given the promise of the land. The land promises an inheritance to their fathers. The promise made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. Now I want you to think about these, these promises that you've just read. The person who returns to God is given a promise of freedom from captivity. The person who returns to God is given the promise of godly leadership with hearts and teaching focused on the fullness of knowledge and understanding. The person who returns to God will see an increase in those who come into a saving knowledge of the truth. The person who returns to God is given an opportunity to, and to participate in Messiah's future kingdom. The person who returns to God will experience Christ's rule and reign now and in the future. The person who returns to God will see the restoration and reunification of Israel. The person who returns to God will experience a glorious inheritance. Remove anger. Invite mercy. Pour out promises. Doesn't it make you want to repent? Some of you are old enough to remember the opening of the wide worlds of sports. Do you remember? Where we talk about the glorious victory and the agony of defeat. Do you remember the agony of defeat? Does anyone remember seeing the skier come down the slopes? And then all of a sudden they say the agony of defeat. And the guy lands and he tumbles and he starts tumbling and it does look pretty agony. 
like a lot of agony. For years, the opening said the agony of defeat with a painful ending to an attempted ski jump. The skier appears in good form as he heads down the jump, but then for no apparent reason, he tumbles head over heels off the side of the jump, bouncing off the supporting structure. What viewers didn't know was that he chose to fall rather than finish the jump. Do you know why? As he later explained, the jump surface had come so fast and midway down the ramp, he realized that if he completed the jump, he would land on level ground beyond the safe sloping landing area, which could have been fatal. And as it was, the skier suffered no more than a headache from the tumble. To change one's course in life can be traumatic and painful, but change is better than a fatal landing at the end. Repentance might seem awkward, but it's not fatal. Repentance might mean, you mean my whole life is going to be different? You mean the way that I live and the way that I pray and the way that I work and the way that I entertain and the way that I am entertained? You, do you, do you, are, are you saying that if I repent and return to God, then that means I'm going to have to give up a life of sin and rebellion? Yeah. What's in it for me? Mercy. Grace. Promises. You know what? Jeremiah is going to give this message for 51 chapters. Do you know what my job is going to be? To figure out 51 ways to make you repent. I know that. A very famous American said that there must be 50 ways to leave your lover. But there's only one way to repent. It's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's only one way. Change your mind. Allow God to change your heart. And he will change your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, for that person who has been living in a dark and an empty world. Absent your favor. Absent your promises, absent your protection. Lord, I pray that you would issue that invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come into him and have fellowship with him. Only confess your sin. Remember, remember where you came from. Understand that my anger and my mercy is available to you. Heavenly Father, I pray that each and every person would pour their heart out to you. Lord, I pray each and every man and each and every woman would examine their heart. That they would confess those areas of their life that have been dishonoring and displeasing to you. Lord, I pray that you would invite them to confess. 
and to repent and to return into arms that are opened wide and that they would experience the promises of Jesus. Of your presence now and your presence forever. In Jesus' name, amen.